Chapter Four, Part Twenty Two of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Route Trial, Part Twenty Two of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana in december two thousand eighteen part twenty two now there is one further point to which i wish to call your attention i want you to remember that a partnership is not a conspiracy although all the facts about a partnership are consistent with the idea of a conspiracy up to a certain point and all the facts about a conspiracy are consistent with the partnership up to a certain point the fact that men act together does not show that they have conspired, does not show that they have a wicked design. The fact that they are engaged in the same business does not show that they have a wicked design or that they are there by conspiracy. In other words, I want your minds so that you will distinguish between a fact that may be innocent, and generally is innocent, and a fact that must be evidence of guilt. I want you to distinguish between the facts common to all partnerships, common to all agreements, and those facts that necessarily imply a criminal intent. If you will do that, gentlemen, you will have but little trouble. At this point, a volume of the report of the trial was handed up to the court by Mr. Ingersoll with a reference to a certain page. The Court Without looking at the book, I take risk of saying that the court never announced its opinion on that question until the case referred to a few moments ago. Mr. Ingersoll, I just gave my memory on the subject. It does not make any great difference in this case, of course. Mr. Carpenter, this is during the cross-examination of Rodell. The court, yes, the court did state on that occasion. That is not the point here. If they are allowed to go on and cross-examine this way without the production of the books, they cannot contradict the witness afterwards by producing the books. I had forgotten that I had announced it twice. Mr. Ingersoll, if the court please, I did not want to bring this up, because I knew you had, and so I thought I would slip you the book and let you off easy. The court, I do not think it weakens the position at all that the same announcement has been made twice instead of once? Mr. Carpenter, we thought it made it stronger. The court, still, the books were not produced. Mr. Ingersoll, now, if the court please, I am not arguing. The court interposing, I will leave you to the jury. Mr. Ingersoll, your honor knows that I have always shown great modesty about trying to do anything against any decision. The court, I do not dispute that. Mr. Ingersoll. Now, the next question, gentlemen, is what is meant by corroboration. If you tell a man that he is not a great painter, he does not get angry. He says he does not pretend to paint, or is not a great sculptor. But if you tell him he has no logic, he loses his temper. Yet logic is perhaps the rarest quality of the human mind. There are thousands of painters and sculptors where there is one logician. 
a man swears for instance that he went down to a man's house in the morning at six o'clock and that mr thomas was standing just in front of the house and when he went in the dog tried to bite him and that after he got in he had such and such conversation now there are thousands of people who have brains of that quality that they think the fact that he did go there at six o'clock in the morning and did see mr thomas standing out in front of the house and especially the fact that the dog did try to bite him is a corroboration of the conversation that took place in the house there are just such people in this case for instance in mr brady's matter they say that the fact of walsh being in his house is important suppose that he was what of it is that corroboration corroboration must be on the very point in dispute it must be the very hinge of the question then it is corroboration if the question is what did the man say it is not corroboration to prove that the man was there unless the man swears that he was not there then the inference is drawn that if he would lie about being there he might lie about what he said now understand me they will say for instance here is an affidavit and these blanks have been filled up Rodell says they were filled up and he says they were filled up after they were sworn to now the fact that the affidavit is there and that the blanks are filled up is not corroboration because the point to be corroborated is that it was done after it was sworn to and so the existence of the affidavit while it is necessary is no corroboration the filling up of the blank is no corroboration its being on file is no corroboration why the point to be corroborated is not that the blanks were filled but that they were filled after the paper had been sworn to that is the point and when they begin to talk to you about corroboration i want you to have it in your minds all the time that to be corroborated about an immaterial matter is nothing it has nothing to do with the question but there must be corroboration on the very heart of the point at issue there is another thing gentlemen it does not make any difference what i say about this man or that man or the other man unless there is a reason in what i say if i tell you that the evidence of a witness is not worthy of belief i must tell you why i must give you the reason if i simply say the witness is a perjurer that shows that i either underrate your sense or have none of my own because that is not calculated to convince any human mind one way or another you are not to take my statement you are to take the evidence and such reasons as i give and only such as appeal to your good sense if i say you must not believe that man i must give you the reason why if the reason i give is a good one you will act upon it if it is a bad one i cannot make it better by piling epithet upon epithet there is no logic in abuse there is no argument in an epithet and there is another thing an attorney has a certain privilege he is protected by the court he is given almost absolute liberty of speech and it is a privilege that he never should abuse he should remember if he attacks a defendant that the defendant cannot open his mouth he should remember that it does not take as much courage to attack as it does not to attack 
he should remember too that by the use of epithets by abuse that he is appealing to the lowest and basest part of every juror's head and heart it is on a low level it is a fight with the club of a barbarian instead of with an intellectual scimitar there is no logic in abuse there is no argument in epithet remember that the weight and worth of an argument is the effect it has upon an unperjured mind and that is all it is worth therefore i do not want you gentlemen to be carried away by any assault that may be made i do not say that any will be made but any that may be made that is not absolutely justified by the evidence there has been one little thing said during this trial that is about the testimony of defendants i believe mr bliss takes the ground that you cannot believe a defendant that defendants cannot be believed unless they are corroborated mr bliss has the kindness to put the defendants in this case on an equality with his witness Rodell. gentlemen you cannot believe any witness unless his evidence is reasonable every witness has to be corroborated by the naturalness of his story every witness is to be corroborated by his manner upon the stand and by the thousand little indications that catch the eye of the juror or of a judge or of an attorney congress has passed a law allowing defendants to swear when they are put upon trial will you tell me that the law is a net a snare and a delusion and the moment a defendant takes the stand the prosecution is to say of course he will lie why do they say that because he is a defendant and you cannot believe a word that he says he is swearing in his own behalf there is the same low slimy view of human nature again that a defendant who swears in his own behalf must swear falsely i do not take that view the defendant has the same right upon the stand as anybody else has and if his character is not good his character can be attacked it can be impeached by the prosecution precisely as you would impeach the reputation of any other witness if he tells a story which is reasonable you will believe it and you will believe it notwithstanding he is a defendant and notwithstanding he has an interest in the verdict in old times they would not allow a man to swear at all if he had the interest of assent in any civil suit they would not allow him to testify when he was on trial for his own liberty and his own life that was barbarism the enemy the man who hated him he could tell his story but the man attacked the man defending his own liberty and his own life his mouth was closed and sealed we've gotten over that barbarism in nearly all the states of this union and now we say let every man tell his story don't allow any avenue to truth to be closed let us hear all sides and whatever is reasonable take as the truth and what is unreasonable throw away and gentlemen let me say here that it is not your business to go to work picking a witness's testimony all apart and saying well i guess there is a little scrap now that there is some truth in or here is a line and i guess that is so but the next eleven lines i do not believe the next sentence i think will do that is not the way to do if a witness is of that character you must throw his entire evidence to the winds for it is tainted 
and the fountains of justice should not be tainted with such evidence and a verdict should not be touched and corrupted with such testimony you will take the evidence of these defendants as you would take that of any other man and it is for you to say whether that evidence is true it is for you to say that if corroboration was so necessary why were not their witnesses corroborated why didn't they call mr bosler to corroborate their witness now one of the defendants in this case is mr john r minor and i want you to think of the terrible things they have against him one of the charges made against him is that he wrote a petition and wrote in six names attached to it his explanation is that if he did anything of that kind it was because he received a petition which was so worn that it could not be presented and he copied it and that the six names were found on that petition there was no other way on earth for him to get those names and we find them on the same route in i believe seven other petitions which were filed we find that those very names are on the other petitions and i think mr hall's name the one the most trouble was made about was on three or four petitions of the other kind mr carpenter he admitted that he wrote them mr ingersoll yes hall admitted that he wrote them but i believe this petition was never filed in the department i think mr woodward said he found it among the papers at some other place there is a petition called the utah petition that has some names in utah i think mr woodward swore that he found it in room twenty two or twenty three mr merrick in the case itself in the department mr ingersoll yes but it has no file mark mr woodward says he does not now remember how it got in there as i was about to remark there was a petition called the utah petition with some names of persons living off the route i believe two or three sheets the petition itself was genuine and was endorsed i believe by senators slatter and grover and by congressman whittaker now then how did these names come in there the petition is ample without those names large enough i will tell you what i think i think that it is part of another petition and that it was result of an accident i think it was done in the post office department not intentionally but as an accident the evidence is that they kept three routes in one pigeonhole and that the papers sometimes got mixed that is mr brewer's testimony a very strange thing happened to that petition while it was before this jury it came apart again and if some clerk not absolutely familiar with the papers had taken it up he would have been just as liable to put it on the wrong petition as on the right one my plan is to account for a thing in some way consistent with evidence if i naturally can i do not go out of my way hunting for evidence of crime and when there was a petition large enough with a plenty of genuine names on it i cannot imagine anybody would go and get names from any other petition and paste them on to that but being in this same country and the testimony being that they had three of these routes in one pigeonhole my idea is that the papers got mixed and mingled sometimes and i say the probability is that it was an accident that is the best way to account for it if minor had known that that petition was there that he had made 
would he have allowed it to stay there why would he want to do such a thing if he was in a conspiracy with brady why would he have to resort to perjury and interlineation in order to get brady to make orders that he brady had conspired to make absurdity cannot go beyond that here is the doctrine i have conspired with the second assistant postmaster general he will do anything for me that i want now i will go and forge some petitions that seems to me perfectly idiotic this petition was endorsed by senators grover and slatter and congressman whittaker then there is another petition the one that i showed you this morning with the words schedule thirteen hours and the evidence was that is if you call what wordell stated as evidence that minor wrote the words schedule thirteen hours i have shown you this morning those words and without any other particle of argument i want to leave it to you who wrote those words whether wordell wrote them or minor then there is another wonderful thing about that petition it is not on any of the routes in this indictment and has no business here i mean the ehrenberg petition the one i spoke of was the kearney and kent the next petition is the ehrenberg and mineral park they say that there has been some word erased and another written in nobody pretends that it was not a genuine petition nobody pretends that it was not signed by every one of the persons by whom it purports to be signed then another peculiarity it is not on any route in this indictment it has no more to do with this case than the last leaf of the mormon bible not the least let us see if they have any more of these terrible things here is a petition two a on the kearney and kent route that is the petition that has the words schedule thirteen hours that is the one endorsed by senator saunders petition eighteen k on the route from ehrenberg to mineral park is not a route in this case it turns out that the names on it are genuine and the genuineness of the petition has not been challenged the only point made is that the word ehrenberg has been written by somebody else there is no evidence to show that the petition was not properly signed that the persons on there did not sign their names or authorize somebody else to do it the probability is there may have been some mistake in the name or it may have been misspelled there was some mistake made and the word ehrenberg was written in on page forty one eighty six mr minor swears positively that in regard to the petition two a he never wrote the words schedule thirteen hours then there is another petition i think it is on page twelve hundred forty seven the camp mcdermott petition there are the words ninety-six hours and they get that down there to a fine point mr boone swore that he did not know who wrote the word ninety but mr minor wrote the word six well that is too fine a point gentlemen to put on handwriting it seems there is an interlineation there of the words ninety-six and they say they do not know who wrote the word ninety and that minor wrote the word six but minor swears that he did not write it at all now then you take away the evidence of mr rodell as to minor and what is left the evidence left is that of a w moore and what is that 
it is that mr minor instructed him to get up false petitions this was the first time he ever went out but more swore that he had made arrangements to do what minor instructed him to do that he made such arrangements with major but major swears he did not moore swore that he made some arrangements with mcbean and the government did not ask mcbean whether he did or not but i will show that he did not the testimony shows that on the first trip at the time he saw major he did not see mcbean now just see he swore in the first place that he made the arrangement with major and mcbean i find afterwards that his evidence shows that he did not see mcbean on the first trip but he did see him on the second on page one four o eight we find that when moore went west the second time when he left here and had made a bargain with dorsey for one quarter interest in his route and minor told him to go west and let dorsey's routes go to the devil and he said he would and never notified dorsey that he was going to do it that man comes here now and swears that he made a contract with dorsey for one quarter interest and then started west and made a contract with minor letting dorsey's routes go he did not have the decency to even notify dorsey that he was going to do so that is the man on the first trip he did not agree with anybody about petitions now understand my point because it kills mr moore again we have to keep killing these people keep killing them it is something like the boy who was found pounding a woodchuck he was pounding him away in the road with all his might and a man came along and said to him what are you pounding that woodchuck for he said oh i am just pounding him but the man said he is dead yes i know said the boy but i am pounding him to show him that there is punishment after death <laughs> now on page one four o eight we find that this man moore went to the west a second time i have shown you that the first time he swears he did not see mcbean at all he saw major and made the arrangement with him he says major swears he did not they do not put mcbean on the stand now he goes a second time on the second trip they say he had nothing to do with the petition business at all and did not explain the petition business to anybody because he had not the time and on the first trip did not see mcbean at all and yet he swears that he made an arrangement with mcbean about these very petitions the proof that he did not see mcbean on the first trip is found on page thirteen ninety eight there is one other point about which we have heard an immensity of talk and upon which a great deal of air has been wasted and that is that there was a bargain that brady was to have fifty per cent of all the fines that he remitted in other words that he made a bargain with his co-conspirators that if he fined them a thousand dollars and then remitted it that he was to have five hundred dollars or one half of that fine that is a nice bargain for me to put myself in the power of a man and say now you find me what you want to and then if you will take it off i will give you half of it it seems to me that that would be quite an inducement for him to find me yet here is a man who makes a bargain that brady may impose a fine upon them and that he may have half of it back that is upon their doctrine although they have never proved it but they state it just the same as though they had but here are the facts 
here are the fines and deductions on twelve routes the fines amount to eighty nine thousand six hundred and thirty eight dollars and twenty two cents and the remissions amount to seven thousand four hundred and twenty eight dollars and fifty four cents that is all and yet they pretend that we had a bargain now come to the mail routes and we find that the fines amounted to sixty one thousand two hundred and thirty two dollars and twenty cents and all that they could get their co-conspirators to take off of that although according to the doctrine of the prosecution they were to have fifty per cent was thirteen thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars and sixteen cents that was all they could get off there are the figures there has been talk enough on that subject but all the air that wraps the earth could not answer those facts words enough to wear out all human lips could not change those facts fines eighty nine thousand dollars remissions seven thousand dollars fines sixty one thousand dollars remissions thirteen thousand dollars and yet they pretend that they had a bargain by which he had fifty per cent of all he remitted i need not make any more argument on that point there have been one or two things in this trial that i have regretted and one i find in mr kerr's speech and i find frequent reference to it in other places and that is the blindness of s w dorsey affidavits were made by doctors marmion bliss and sowers that mr dorsey had lost at least eleven twelfths of his vision and yet it has been constantly thrown out to you that it was a ruse a device and i believe mr kerr said in his speech that mr dorsey saw a paper in mr merrick's hand mr merrick i believe holding a balance sheet from the german american savings bank a paper several feet wide or long and because mr dorsey said to him i believe you have it in your hand why they said this man is pretending to be blind his testimony was that he had been in a dark room for three months that his eyes had not been visited by one ray of light for three months and that for six months he had not read a solitary word and yet the prosecution sneeringly pretended that there was nothing the matter with his eyes they subpoenaed dr marmion but they dare not put him on the stand they threw out hints and innuendos that these doctors had sworn falsely but they dare not put it to the test it seems that nothing in the world can satisfy them about stephen w dorsey except to see him convicted except to have them put their feet upon his neck gentlemen you never will enjoy that pleasure you never will while the world swings in its orbit find twelve honest men to convict stephen w dorsey never this government may put forth its utmost power it may spend every dollar in its treasury it may hire all the ingenuity and brain of the country and it can never find twelve men who will put stephen w dorsey in the penitentiary never and you might as well give it up one time as another try it year after year poison the mind of the entire public with the newspapers get all the informers you can bring all the witnesses you can find put all those whom you can call accomplices on the stand and i give you notice that it can never be done and i want you to know it spend your millions and you will end where you start as long as the average man runs there will always be one or two honest men in a dozen 
so you cannot convict one of these defendants go on but it will never be accomplished there is one other thing which perhaps may be worth noticing i believe that they proved by mr dorsey that he wrote an account of his relation in this business and published it in the new york herald the only point with which mr merrick quarrelled in that entire paper was the statement that peck was a large contractor and when dorsey was put on the stand he explained that while peck had not many routes in his own name that he was a partner of a man named chidester that is the only thing of which he complained and yet that communication pretended to tell the relation that dorsey sustained to this entire business and if that had not been accorded precisely to dorsey's testimony on the stand every word of it would have been read to you again and again and mr kerr says that letter was written for the purpose of poisoning public opinion was the letter of the attorney-general of the united states written just before this trial began written to bias public opinion also mr merrick is there any evidence of that letter in this trial if not i object to any reference to it the court you cannot refer to that because it is not in the case mr ingersoll i take it back was dixon indicted to bias public opinion mr merrick i object to that also was he indicted by the grand jury on competent testimony the court there is no evidence in this case that he was indicted mr ingersoll i will take it back then i would ask the court however after the attorney for the government has said that dorsey wrote that letter to bias public opinion if i have not the right to say that he wrote that letter because letters had been written by others mr merrick not unless those letters are in proof the court the fact that he wrote the letter is in evidence in the case that of course makes it the proper subject of comment on either side anything else not in evidence is not a subject of controversy mr ingersoll i will take it for granted however that the jury understand what is going on in this case mr merrick yes they understand the evidence mr ingersoll i understand that the jury as members of this community as citizens of the united states have at least a vague idea of what the department of justice has done it is also claimed and has been claimed and i have answered it again and again and again that s w dorsey is the chief conspirator why is it possible that it is because he was the chief man politically is it possible that any politician was envious of his place and power is it possible that any politician was envious of the influence he had with president garfield is it possible that he had interfered with the career of some piece of mediocrity why is it that he is made the chief figure these are questions that are asked and questions that you can answer how does it happen that his name never figures in any division that his name never figures in any paper made in regard to this business how does it happen that when he was contending with the german american national bank that he must be paid how is it that it never occurred to minor or vale to tell him why this is a conspiracy of your own hatching you advance this money to give life to your own bantling and you have got to wait until the conspiracy bears fruit and if you are not willing to wait you can do the next worst thing have it made public 
if at that time when he was opposing and fighting vale because he had cut out his security vale had known that dorsey was in the conspiracy one word from him and stephen w dorsey's mouth would have remained shut forever but it did not occur to minor it did not occur to vale that won't do why didn't vale say to him mr dorsey you are making a great deal of fuss about a few thousand dollars you are in the senate you are interested in these routes and i want to hear no more from you why didn't he say it because it's not true that's why now gentlemen if what the prosecution claims is true not only stephen w dorsey not only thomas j brady not only john r minor not only h m vale and john w dorsey are guilty of conspiracy but hundreds and hundreds of other people do you believe it is possible that all the persons who petitioned for an increase of service who petitioned for expedition do you believe they were in a conspiracy do you believe they were dishonest men and do you believe that they asked for what they did not want do you believe that these defendants had at their beck and call the representatives of the entire great northwest do you believe that members of congress of the lower house and of the senate were their agents and tools was senator hill a conspirator was the present secretary of the interior a conspirator were senator grover and senator slatter also conspirators were generals judges district attorneys members of state and territorial legislatures were they all conspirators did they endorse false petitions for the purpose of putting money in the pockets of these defendants let us be honest do you believe that general miles was a conspirator or that general sherman whose title is next to that of the president and whose name is one synonymous of victory entered into a conspiracy do you believe that he knows as much about the mail business as colonel bliss do you believe that he knows as much about the wants of the great northwest as the gentlemen who are prosecuting this case was he a conspirator with their representative in congress from oregon was horace f page a conspirator these are questions gentlemen that you must answer were all these men these officers of the army state officers federal officers and men of national reputation were they all engaged in a conspiracy were they endeavoring to assist these defendants in plundering the treasury of these united states these are questions for you to ask and questions for you to answer is it not wonderful that such a conspiracy should have existed in all the western states at one time gentlemen is it wonderful that all the people of the west want males do you not know and do i not know that the mail is the substantial benefit we get from the general government don't you know that the mail is the pioneer of civilization do you not know that there ought to be a mail wherever the flag floats do you not know that the only way to keep a great country like this together a vast territory of three million square miles three million five hundred thousand square miles is by the free distribution of the mail 
if you are going to keep the people who populate that territory together if you are going to keep them of one heart and one mind if you are going to make them keep step to the union and to the progress of this nation you must have frequent intercourse with them all a telegraph must reach to the remotest hamlet the little electric spark freighted with intelligence and patriotism must visit every home and the newspaper and the letter bearing words of love from home and news from abroad must visit every house so that every man whether digging in the mine or working on the farm may feel the throb and thrill of the great world and be a citizen of a mighty nation instead of an ignorant provincial i am in favor of frequent mails everywhere all over the plains all through the mountains everywhere wherever the flag flies i want the man who sits under it to feel that the government has not forgotten him that is what i want i take pride in this country i am one of the men who believe that there is only air enough in this entire continent to float one flag i am one of the men who believe that it is the destiny of the united states to control every inch of soil from the arctic to the antarctic and that when a nation loses its ambition to grow increase and expand it begins to die and what right has a man who is carrying the mail to interfere with the policy of the post office department these are large questions gentlemen of the jury and i want you to deal with them in a large and splendid american spirit i want you to feel that we are citizens of the greatest government on this globe i want you to feel that here to every man no matter from what clime he may come no matter to what people no matter of what religion the soil will give emolument the sun will give its light and heat the government will give its protection i like to feel that way about the government and yet because the department adopted a splendid and generous policy it is tortured into evidence of conspiracy this ends chapter four part twenty two of twenty four